it was a journey that uh, was just a really, Brian, a leap of faith. I didn't know what the future was. I just knew I needed the wind in my face and I felt like the wind was in my sails and off I went. I'm Brian Kramer. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is making smaller shifts. It's the small shifts in our lives that can create epic outcomes. Your journey to be more deeply connected into the life you truly deserve starts right now. Welcome to Humanly Possible, a podcast focused on small shifts that make epic differences in our lives and at work. I'm going to introduce our guest who is not only someone I admire and so honored to have on the show, but he's a close friend of both Courtney and mine and has been for quite some time um, and is just an incredible, incredible human being. And you're going to see exactly why. Um, I do want to introduce him. His name is Brad Davis. He has a doctorate in law uh, and a track record for building high growth brands and award winning communication strategies. He's known and named as one of the top 50 marketers in America by AdAge. Not a small list. Um, He's served in executive leadership positions for national brands that you definitely know for retail and financial services and now renewable energy. Um, he's, he's touched all the, all the interesting markets. Um, I wonder if there's anything left. Uh, successfully launching new markets, both nationally and internationally. And, and he's been inducted as if that's not enough. He's been inducted into the U.S. Retail Marketing Hall of Fame. I imagine him walking down like in between like all these fireworks, um, it, it, like being inducted uh, in the U.S. Retail Marketing Hall of Fame following a national uh, nationwide brand launch. This is kind of interesting, which included the unprecedented buyout of every seat on Broadway for New York's teachers, propelling the brand to the number two position in the market after only 90 days, and then receiving an FE from the American Marketing Associ- Association New York for biz- his business results, launching the company into like like the whole universe of master craft awesomeness. And I think it launched into um, just an unbelievable um, amount of financial results that uh, that the whole world saw, um, you know, grow. And I could go on and on and on into the, the places that you've been and the things that you've done, um, because I've both been able to see it and also just witness it myself too, just in the years that we've known each other, Brad. It's just such an honor to have you here. Now he is the CMO, co-founder, and president of the Consumer Direct at Omnidian, uh, where he's helped to lead a team focused on protecting and accelerating investments in solar energy. So there's another industry for you. Um, is there any industries left, Brad, that we can we can put you in that you haven't been in? I don't know, Brian. You and I should take a look. I'm sure we could come up with something, right? <laughs> Wonderful to have you here. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, so let's get it started. I like to dive right in. And um, one thing I do want to say, just to just to have that, that one moment out of the way, um, we first met at our friend uh, Brad and Stacy's house 
Um, yep. it was, it was like one of those meat cutes. It was awesome because we stood like, we're sitting there in the kitchen and you were telling me about all the places that you had traveled, not necessarily, we, we didn't talk about business. You were just talking about yeah. travel and yeah. you were telling me about all these places. And this is, this is, we had the agency, but it was a long time before I had ever really traveled or done anything. And I was like, just so, so in awe of all these, like you were telling me about these places and I was like, oh man. And then I said something. I said, um, uh, I really want to go to these places. This is just like, this is, I'm so, so curious about how that happened and what, and how I could do that. And you looked at me and you said, Brian, and then you put your hand on my shoulder and you said, you will go to those places. And, and I just will did. never forget <laughs> that moment. And you, that's just what you do with people. You, you assure them and you see in them and you bring them along with you. And that's, that's just like who you've been and how you are. Um, oh my gosh. You know, what's so amazing is that I, you took me back to that moment in the kitchen. I can't believe it. It was like I was standing there. It feels like yesterday to me. It really does. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. We have been down so many paths together and on so many journeys. It's it's so awesome to be here with you today. Oh, well, uh, tell me about something small, a small shift in your life as far back as you want to go. Uh, it may have felt small at the time, but it ended up being a big shift for you. Oh my gosh. It's like, it's so interesting. You really do dive right in because I was thinking about this the other day. Um, the uh, I was... I had this incredible honor. I actually think it was that year that you're talking about. And I was invited to meet the Dalai Lama at the Vancouver uh, Peace Summit. I think the year was 2010. There were about 100 uh, global business and philanthropic leaders who had been invited to spend three days with the Dalai Lama. It was really, I mean, it was life-altering in so many ways just because of the people who were there and the people I met. I, I said to somebody, my life is one administrative error after another. <laughs> they were like, how did you get invited here? It's like, I don't know. Don't ask. But I, I got there and someone in the audience asked the Dalai Lama a question I will never forget as long as I live. And the question was this. Your holiness, what is the path to spiritual peace? And uh, first of all, I'll never forget the reaction because my first reaction was, he's been asked this question 10,000 times, probably this morning, but he showed up to the question with such a great attitude. And he paused as if he had never heard the question. And he said, what an interesting question. He paused. Well, first, don't listen to other people. Other people tend to be very negative that will not guide you to spiritual peace. And secondly, stop listening to the inner voice inside. The inner voice inside is very negative. That will not guide you to spiritual peace. I hope this helps. And if it doesn't, you should throw it away. Think about the humility in that statement. I hope this helps. And if it doesn't, you should throw it away. And someone who's seated next to me when we broke for lunch said to me, I don't get it. It's like, I'm not supposed to listen to the people on the outside. And I'm not supposed to listen to the person on the inside. Who am I supposed to listen to? And I thought, that's the magic of the answer. It's this moment of truth. When you shut all that down and you open the space that allows truth to enter, right? You're not trying to create it. You're not listening to it. You're, it's not an obstacle to you. Um, you're not even seeking it. You're just creating space for it. 
And I think it changed my life because so many times when I've been in a situation that personally or professionally was uh, uh, creating trauma in whatever way or stress, I followed that advice. I stopped listening to the people on the outside. I've listened to them a lot. Now they've, uh, I'm at a, a moment of stress. I'm going to stop listening so that my mind has time to collate everything I've heard. And I'm going to stop listening to the voices of doubt inside. And that advice has just, it's just been a small thing that's made a, a giant difference in my life. Oh, man. You know, what I love about that is you mentioned that the question, again, had been asked of him so many times, but his humility in that moment to pause and give that person their moment. You know something? It's so interesting that you say that because I was talking to this woman in Seattle, Washington, Constance Rice. She was the former chair of the uh, Board of Regents of the University of Washington. And I, we were talking about great leaders. She's an African-American, and I was interviewing her as part of a podcast. And we were talking about, like, talk about the great uh, African-American leaders you've known in your life and, like, what was the common thread? And if you went down that list of people that she has known and been with, you know, she's like, well, the first was Martin Luther King. Well, what was he like? And her response was, well, it's really interesting that you asked me that because he was just a kid at the time. I mean, he wasn't really anybody. He was just sitting in the right... So she had seen this gamut of people who had become great leaders and great icons, but had just started as a moment as humans, right? They were just in the room as humans. Um, they hadn't risen to that iconic status. And she said, the one thing that united all of them was authenticity. And I think about that when you talk about the Dalai Lama pausing before he answered, because it reflected two of the traits of great leaders, right? Humility and authenticity. And I, I, it just, and you know what it did? It, when you go back and you analyze it, which I didn't do at the time, it causes you to just pause and go, what was it about the pause that made it significant? Because it was just enough time for everybody to lean in and go, what's he going to say? It's like, I often say when uh, people say, you know, how do you give a great speech? And I was like, well, look, put images up that guide you not the words, but just the images, because that moment when you look up at the screen to know where you're going to know, go next without really knowing, it's like that second when Tarzan lets go of the grapevine and is about to grab the next one. You take the audience with you on that journey because they see you doing it and they go, I'm not sure he knows where he's going to go next. But they get clued in at the same time as you, and it's, it creates this moment of authenticity that's really important in all of our communications, mm. right? Oh, it's such a... I mean, there's so many avenues we can go with even that in storytelling, and you're such a great storyteller, and I, I want to dive into that. But before we do that, I want to go back in time um, to before... Brad, the kitchen. <laughs> before the kitchen. Before Brad became a businessman and what, what kind of like you were like and what, what you, what propelled you into, I mean, you were getting a law degree and you were looking at the world maybe in a whole different way before you even saw working for Target and working for Washington Mutual and working and now doing what you're doing. Like, what was that Brad like? And what were the shifts that you were creating then before all this even was a thing? 
oh my gosh, you're the only person who's ever asked me this question. <laughs> and I actually, this is amazing because I actually know the answer. It's like when I was a kid, right? Um, I was growing up in West Virginia and I knew that West Virginia wasn't the spot for me. It just wasn't. My family had been there since the 1600s and my mom and dad had both been the mayor of the town and the community. But I just, there was a bigger world and I wanted to be out into the bigger world, but I didn't know where to go or how to get there or what to do. And so I started doing what I try to teach a lot of people I'm mentoring, punch your ticket. So I started to punch my ticket. I had to get a college degree. And then I went off and I interned in the Congress in Washington. And when I was interning in the Congress in Washington, the congressman said to me, if you want to work in DC, you've got to have a law degree. Okay, great. I'll punch that ticket. I, was, I went to get a law degree. And I liked the study of law, but I didn't like the practice of law. I think the aspect of it that really appealed to me was like communication. It was as I found myself at this like crossroad where it's like, okay, there's a group of people who doesn't get another group of people and can I be that bridge? And I found this just incredible talent through empathy, listening to people and being able to translate what they were feeling to other people. And I think that led me to something that was quite uh, serendipitous. It's like I got an offer to, to uh, practice law with the federal government in San Francisco, California. And uh, I flew to California with $500 a suitcase, a job, and no place to stay that night. <laughs> That's another story. I jumped into the back of the right taxi, and the driver led me to the right place, and the rest is history. But I found my whole life that throughout my career, it was never the resume that got me there. The fact that I had punched the ticket helped, but it was always people that I had met who guided me to the next thing. And um, I had a friend um, who had gone to work for this uh, place called Target, and he called me up and he said, look, you ought to come to work here. And I did. And 14 years later, as you know, I was director of uh, marketing uh, for uh, their Mervyn's division here in California. But the, um, uh, it, it was just, it was a journey that uh, was just a really, Brian, a leap of faith. It was just a leap of faith. I didn't know what the future was. I just knew I needed the wind in my face and I felt like the wind was in my sails and off I went. Wow. Um, in a taxi with $5 in bag. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so I jump into the back of the taxi at the San Francisco airport. Can you even imagine this? I'm like in my early 20s and I said to the taxi, he goes, where are you going? And I go, I don't know where should I stay tonight? And the taxi driver said to me, okay, kid, uh, there, there's the YMCA on the Embarcadero. Uh, that's back when the freeway went right through the Embarcadero. And they have nice clean rooms for $10 a night until you can sort it out. And that's what I did. And the rooms were very clean and it was very safe. And that's where I went. And that's where my life in California started. Wow. I don't, how, I don't know how you dragged me out of that. You may be the only person who knows that story. <laughs> Me and, well, um, <laughs> whoever's we may, listening, whoever's listening. Um, so, so, uh, fast forward now into, um, into your now working life. What are some of the shifts in your life that, um, that you approached that were some of the Kilimanjaro's, like the major mountains or a mountain, a big mountain, a massive mountain that you had to overcome? Um, that you just were like, oh my God, this seems insurmountable. How am I going to do this? 
okay, I'll tell you what it is, but now we really have to fast forward, right? Because the little mountains weren't really mountains. I always found throughout my life that if you ask people about what they do and you show a genuine interest in them, they'll lead you to the next thing and they're, they're happy to help. And I was always a super curious person. So I had a lot of questions for a lot of people and a lot of people guided me along the way. But I'll tell you the, the big mountain really that taught me a lesson for life was this. I was with a bank called Washington Mutual, which was the largest savings and loan in the nation and later became known as the largest bank failure in U.S. history. I had been gone many years before that happened, I have to say. But at one point in time, when it was really on its rise, um, we were entering the New York market. And it was a big deal. We had a lot of offices in the New York market, and we were up against a lot of competitors who had been there over a century. And so their brands were really well-founded. And do you remember, Brian, the time when you would like see all these banks and they were doing ads for like free checking, and then pretty soon everybody had free checking, so they started to give stuff away. And you know, a bank could be a pretty lucrative place to be because you could get like a free set of dishes and a gold coin and a free checking account. And I thought, you know, that is not going to work, and it's not going to work going into New York City. And so... What we did is, I, the lesson I learned is that my whole life, my greatest successes have not been selling what I'm selling, but creating value by tapping into the time and emotion of a tribe with which we were associated. And so, for example, we sat down and we started a brainstorm and we said, going into New York, let's look for tribes that are underserved or underrecognized. And we found three, amazingly. One, teachers. No surprise to you, right? And so we had a, a, just this terrific uh, team uh, who said, look, let us go away and think about how we recognize teachers. And ultimately, we did this thing where we bought out every seat on Broadway all on the same night. So we had all the marquees, big party for 25,000 people in Times Square. You can't imagine the amount of press coverage just from that because teachers, we just wanted to genuinely recognize them and do something really cool for them. And it was awe-inspiring because you had all these teachers holding Broadway tickets saying, nobody really made me feel important like this, right? And so all of a sudden, we had this incredible leverage in the market from a genuine spot where people were talking about us. And then we reached out to affordable housing organizations and realized no one had ever united all of them. There were many of them. They hadn't even met. And so we had all these walks for affordable housing that ended with a big concert in Central Park with Jewel and Patti LaBelle on Long Island. And um, so we just united all these groups of people. And we came from this place of recognizing these tribes those who were underserved, underrecognized. And what happened is they became our biggest advocates. And, you know, the rest of the story is that 90 days later, we were number two in the market in terms of uh, recognition. And we hadn't sold our products at all. We had simply created value for people and organizations that really um, had a link with us and who were important to us. But we did it by recognizing them and by bringing joy to their life. And it just causes me to think like, given the pandemic and where we are with the pandemic right now, it's like, there's never been a better opportunity to create joy in people's lives. You know, who doesn't want a virtual hug right now, right? There's like, I dare someone to show up on my front door and say, I want a hug. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> because we're all just seeking human connection. And it's a beautiful, beautiful time for us to find those avenues to create genuine human connections because people will never forget us for it. Oh my God, so well said. 
connection. Absolutely. As you know, in my second book, it was, that was what the whole whole thing was about is how do we get more connection? And, and, and right now more than, more than ever, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's so needed. And I'm, I'm, uh, curious how you because you're a connector you are by by just simply showing up you're a connector and um and and it's it's wonderful to watch and i'm uh, where does that come from and what do you what gives you so much joy in doing that it comes from a place of trauma i think um in a way uh my mother uh was a great lady um but she was kind of volatile when i was young um in my later years, she became a hospice nurse and was really well-known in the community. And there's a park in my community dedicated to her memory. But when I was a kid, she was very volatile. And, um, you know, we won't dive into what caused that, but it caused me to have this incredible sense of empathy for how other people were feeling. So when I walk into a room, I almost, at my DNA level, can like gauge where people are in the room. And I have this incredible desire to connect them to make everybody comfortable. That's really an important thing for me to do. And so, you know, as a leader, I think one of the things that it's taught me is that the greatest thing about leadership is like, you know, you have those moments of aperture as a leader, right? It's like, there's all this anxiety. It's like, oh my God, they want me to show up. They want me to solve this. They want me to be this. They want me to rise to this. And then the inner voice kicks in and then the outer voice kicks in and then you forget about meeting the Dalai Lama and all, right, all crap breaks loose. Whereas what you really should do is just show up with a great attitude. It's like the question the Dalai Lama was asked, he just showed up to the question with a great attitude. And what I found is that if you can create those openings, if you can just show up, not feel like you have to do anything, it creates an opening for the most powerful words in business, which I think are, thank you, I don't know, and third, I hear you. And when great leaders can just show up with a great attitude and listen, it creates this opening for others to lead the way themselves. And I think it's just, it's really important. But um, I think that sense of empathy and that need not to be anything I'm not um, really allowed me to give permission to other people to bring their own authentic selves to the table. And I think that's what people respond to. Oh, this is like a masterclass. Um, when you, what, with empathy, uh, there's a line, I would imagine, on empathy versus uh, becoming too empathetic and yes. drawing that into yourself. I know that because I am an empath. Yeah. Um, and so I'm kind of asking the question as I'm always in search of the answer. Um, and I'm more, uh, constantly working of that. I'd love to know what your thinking is of that. Well, it's like, you know, when I'm coaching people and people will say it often comes up with uh, coaching people around performance, right? And so someone will come to me and they'll go, you know, I think they're going to make it. I'm not sure if they're going to make it. Or I'm seeing this problem. You know, how do I deal with this problem? And, like, and people don't react to those things quickly enough. Because you know, nine times out of 10, if you go to someone and you point out a problem, they'll turn to you 
relative to their performance, and they'll say, oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. I've been thinking this forever, and right. Um, but the whole idea is what I always say to people is, look, you don't need to approach the situation, and I'm just using that as an example because it's an example of a, tra- a relatively traumatic and uncomfortable situation. Don't approach it. Approach it with empathy, but, but with truth told with empathy. So you can't skip the truth part. But if you can just tell truth with empathy, people will feel it and it will have a, di- a different impact. And I think that for me, that's where I draw the line with empathy. It's like, I'll be empathetic, but I, I have a mission and the mission is to tell truth, but tell it with empathy. Brilliant. Truth with empathy. I can see that being tweeted <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> I think we just got a tweetable. Um, how cool. So um, I, I'm going to adopt that. I'll, I will quote you on that. Um, the the next, I, you know, we can go in so many different directions with that, but I want to stay in, in line here and also ask you about an, an unintentional outcome that you had in your life um, that you face and, what did you do to create from that place? Well, I would say it's this. It was a big failure, actually. And it was a big failure because um, when I was working with Washington Mutual, which was acquired by J.P. Morgan Chase, we had this big event we called State of the Group, Brian. And we would bring in like 5,000 people from all over the United States. And it was once a year. And... Uh, Typically, it was the Seattle Convention Center. We held it a couple of years in LA. But people were so excited by it. They would pack their bags, and they got to come to this big event. And when you open the doors to the convention center, it was lights, camera, action, stars. It was the whole nine yards. <laughs> and we had a team of people who didn't do anything but plan it end to end. And for year after year after year, it had been so successful uh, people would say to me, and I, uh, I just kind of, uh, uh, someone reached out to me recently. I hadn't seen for 15 years on LinkedIn and said, Oh my God, I always like couldn't wait for your, like what you were going to say at state of the group. And right. And, uh, but I, but I knew why they said that it wasn't me. It's because through that sense of empathy, I focused on telling them their own story. <laughs> and so for me, it was just being an observer. Here, look what look at what you did this year. You know, you were at the avocado festival, the garlic festival, the pumpkin festival. It was a fruit or vegetable. You had it covered, and then the audience would crack up because they had worked so hard on those events, and they had been so successful. So my framework was just to tell them their story and to make sure every executive who hit the stage told them their story and celebrated their story, celebrated them, brought them to the stage. And so this event had this incredible momentum. Well, one year, a team of people came to me and they said, look, we think it's time to shake things up. Uh, Next year, you've been producing this event year after year. I knew it was truthful. (laughs) I felt a little ashamed by it. I thought, oh no, have I been over-controlling this thing? Probably. And um, so we want to shake it up and we want to hire actors and we're going to go on stage and we're going to, you know, teach the lessons that people need to learn, right? It was the most horrific failure ever. Everybody came wanting to be excited and what they found themselves is like strapped in to this horrific, like, you know, lessons being taught from the stage. And it was just, it was awful, awful, awful. 
But I looked back and I thought, I have to own this. I have to wear this. I have to accept complete responsibility for this. And when I looked back, I thought, what could I have done differently? I could have done one thing. I only had to say one word to change the outcome. And the word was inspire. If that's all I had said, and when someone says to me, you know, I need to write a job description for this leadership position, I always go, well, great. Uh, roll a little piece of paper into your typewriter and just type out inspire and then take it out and hand it to them and walk away because they're going to create their own job anyway. And your leadership role is to make sure they're inspiring other people. And so it was a lesson from failure that I never forgot. And it also never caused me to forget what true north was in almost anything you do. Oh, I love that. Um, that, that one word applies to just about everything, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It does. I remember this great leader on the stage in Chicago one time. His name was Peter Glenn. Passed away many years ago, written many books. And I remember him getting up and screaming <laughs> at the CEO of Bloomingdale's who was sitting in the audience and saying, you've got to get this. Your only job is to inspire people. And I remember sitting in like row 54. He later became a great friend. But I remember sitting in row 54 just thinking, how's he talking to the CEO of Bloomingdale's that way, right? But the passion was just magnetic. And the audience roared into applause, right? Because it, it was true, right? Don't, don't correct people. Don't go teaching. Of course, you have to teach. It's, it's part of what you do if you mentor properly. But it, it's mostly to inspire people. Mm. Oh, I love that. Um, I just have a couple more questions. And then, unfortunately, I could spend all day talking to you. But uh, you know, I also know that you have work to do. Um, I wanted, I'd love to know... Uh, I'm, Really, really uh, curious about what you're up to now in, in, in all the things that I'm seeing you post and, and, and I'm, I am inspired by um, what, you're, what you're showing, what you're, how you're showing up in the world now with energy and, um, and the conversation around it um, and what's coming. Um, what's happening in the world. And I think it's just such a magical place to be right now to, to, from. I'd love to know more. What are the shifts that you're hoping to create and, and um, yeah. what do we need to create? Yeah. It, you know, it, it, it's really stepping back and looking at the planet and saying, where do we need to go and, and how do we need to get there? And well, here's the good news. The good news is there is uh, this mass movement toward renewable energy to alternatives to fossil fuels. Fossil fuels aren't the evil empire. It's just we need to rebalance here. And what we need is more focus on uh, renewable energy sources and all the things that all of us are reading about and know. And, and that's progressing, right? The uh, solar sales in both the commercial and residential segment are uh, accelerating rapidly. But what happened is we created a brand new company just a few years ago because all these industry vets that I had worked with many years ago said... Everyone's focused on sales and they're not focused on the post-purchase experience. So think about this. You make a luxury purchase like residential solar and you write a check for twenty-five or thirty dollars or $35,000 and now you've got a solar power plant on your roof. Um, and people hand you a little monitoring device and they say, oh, here, you can like pull this out of grandma's top 
Chester drawer, you know, whenever you want, and you can take a look and see how much power you're generating. But you don't know if that power is right or wrong. Is it too much? Is it not enough? Am I going to save what I thought I was going to save this year? Right? Because you're not a power plant operator. And and normally, what happens is these systems, for various reasons, do underproduce and. Massive failures are apparent, but underproduction is not. And so we wanted to look at the whole post-purchase experience, and we hired a team of engineers to build the whole experience end-to-end so you could literally set it and forget it. We were like bringing confidence to clean energy, and we were helping to protect people's investments. So if there is an issue uh, with the commercial or residential solar system, we monitor those systems 24-7 through our technology. We know if it's because a squirrel chew through a wire because or whether it was because of snowfall uh, we know whether or not this is a, a decrease in energy you should expect or whether or not you need maintenance um, and um, so anyway we're looking we've taken the whole post-purchase experience and we've engineered it seamlessly for both commercial business and residential business the cool thing is it's a movement we have 75 companies across the United States who have partnered with us to bring this level of performance assurance, what we offer, uh, at the end of the year, if you don't get the amount of energy you were promised, we write you a check. So we're literally uh, guaranteeing that you'll get the energy you were promised. And we're taking all the hassle of ownership away so you can enjoy it peacefully and more and more people will be comfortable doing it. We have 200,000 solar sites under management now. We've only been around for four years. But the cool thing about the company and the thing I know you'll relate to, Brian, is it was not only what we were doing, but we stepped back to go how we're going to do it, right? And we realized technology was going to be a really important factor, this ability to remotely diagnose and monitor systems. Um, But what was going to be really important was people hiring to the brand because we wanted to create a customer experience that wasn't good, that wasn't great, but it was amazing. And so we hired people who would bring an amazing customer experience to the table. Um, And uh, that has resulted in our success uh, because if you look at you know the Google reviews online of us, it's our people and our team and reaching out human to human and that personal experience that they're creating that we've got your back. And you can tell they love what they do and they're so enthusiastic about helping people and solving problems um, that uh, it's just created this incredible momentum across the country that we're really, really proud of. I will never forget as long as I live being at a hiring fair for Target. And you know how they do those like uh, hot dog fairs, a hiring fair, and they're serving hot dogs and people have their applications in hand and all that. And the uh, store manager walked out 15 minutes uh, in advance of when people thought they were going to submit their application. She tapped the microphone and she said, look, I know you've got your applications in hand. You're gonna you're looking forward to working for us, but I just want to say this to you. We're gonna break you into groups and the store's gonna open in 15 minutes. We're gonna put you at the door, and all we want you to do is to say hello to everybody as they walk into the store. 50% of the people who were at the hiring fair got in their car and drove away. And she looked at me and she said, mission accomplished, because we would have never been able to teach them to be great customer service representatives. They didn't want to do it anyway. <laughs> 
And so she found this way to weed them out immediately. And so that's what we're doing as well. We're weeding out the people who seem to be interested in the sector and the industry, but aren't necessarily empathetic and interested in serving people. And so we have this incredible team of people who are focused on the customer experience and ensuring people, when they write the check and they invest in solar, whether they're a business or a a homeowner, that they'll have the peaceful use of that asset for the rest of its life and we'll take care of the rest. Wow. Um, You know, you always have this knack for um, the, the one, the one word that if, if I was sitting here with uh, um, uh, a shot, well, shots of tequila and I just had a a shot every time you said it. I think we've done that. (laughs) Probably. And we need to, again, um, is, is uh, experience. That's the word I, I take away from everything that I, I think that, um, really hits me the strong the strongest for what you stand for in in the people that you meet the uh connections that you make the um the effect that you have on companies and the companies have effect on their customers um the experience is like everything and how you go about doing that each time is just impressive um to me and um and uh, you know maybe we could leave off with that uh in 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 I know you're you're working on a on a project now, a personal project, um, and you're 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 trying to you know help mentor others and and maybe even on a wider scale. What would you say to them about creating their experiences in their world, and how would you? What would you leave them with? What will what would you teach them? What's one thing that you would leave them with? The one thing I would leave them with, I think, is that the most powerful asset that they have is curiosity. Right. And if you can be curious and just ask questions and be curious about other people and their life and their journey, you've built um, an entire following around that ability, Brian. And I remember sitting in the Santa Cruz Mountains with you and Courtney at dinner one night, and this topic came up. We were in our dining room. And this whole idea about your future and connecting people through authenticity and curiosity and helping to shine a light on the humanity of people and their ability to rise beyond what they ever expected and to really inspire others to do the same thing. And it's exactly where you've landed. And so, you know, I'm really proud of this moment and to be able to spend this time with you today. Because it's been an incredible journey and you've been on it with me. And I just want to say uh, thank you for reaching out. I'm leaning in right now and uh, virtual hug. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe. We love having subscribers just like you. Download a few more episodes. And if you feel moved, we would so appreciate a review. I'd love to also hear your key takeaway. What impacted you from this episode? You can tweet me your answer and reach out on Twitter at Brian Kramer. That's Brian with a Y, Kramer with a K. And definitely be sure to join us in our Facebook group. We have just under 3,000 humans just like you and me looking to connect even more imperfectly. Until next time.